24, starting verse 23. But the hour is coming, it is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. Father, we're grateful that you have uh, allowed us to gather this morning. We thank you for your word. I pray, Holy Spirit, that uh, you would speak to us through it this morning. Uh, that you would continue to shape us into the people you desire us to be. I pray, Father, that you would uh, speak to and through Aaron uh, even this morning. Yeah, carry him along. Uh, Father, stir our hearts. Help us to see Jesus more clearly, like Bobby prayed earlier, not just to uh, add to a list of the cool things that we know about Jesus, but that our hearts would be stirred, that our lives would be changed in real and tangible ways. So God, do that work in us. We love you. We pray in Jesus' name. Thank you, Pastor Jeff. Good morning, church. It's good to see you this morning. I want to sing more. I want to sing more. Amen. When I was in middle school, uh, my youth group and I, we went on a summer mission trip to Chicago. It was almost like a church camp mission trip hybrid kind of thing where during the day we would go out, we would serve, do outreach with church planners in the city. Then we'd have some deep dish pizza, some Italian beef sandwiches for dinner, and then head back to kind of our home base area for um, you know time of large group singing and sermon listening. Uh, if I'm being honest, I don't really remember the speaker that week being particularly awesome. That's okay. As a, a 14 or 15 year old kid, I was probably more focused on how I could find some more deep dish pizza or convince one of the youth group girls to go out with me. But I do remember that the time we spent singing together that week was enriching. Uh, one night, as we were kind of wrapping up that portion of the evening, the worship time, uh, my youth pastor, one of my very first spiritual mentors in my life, he you know, kind of nudged me, looked over and just said, I want to sing more. In that moment, we both kind of chuckled because, uh, as it would turn out, the singing, uh, the communal worship time of our evening of that week was really the most impactful time, even more than the outreach we did, more than the sermons that we heard, more than riding on the big Ferris wheel and Navy Pier. Uh, but that little phrase, you know, kind of has stuck with me ever since. Every now and then, he and I will be chatting or, you know, texting back and forth, catching up about uh, life and ministry, and we'll eventually, one of us will say to each other, you know, I want to sing more. There's so many Sunday mornings when we're here singing songs together, reading scripture together, sharing the Lord's Supper together, and just think, I want to sing more. For me, uh, it's kind of become this expression of my desire for a continuing, even a deepening sense of worship. Well, this morning, as Pastor Jeff kind of mentioned, we're taking a break from our, you know, overarching series in Matthew. Every fall, we kind of take a break to focus on some kind of element of Kara's vision and mission to kind of 
recalibrate, you know, the school year started, there's new people in town. Uh, we're going to go over, like, what makes Karis Karis? Who are we as a people? Last week we talked about how what our first identity is being disciples, that is, being learners and listeners. <clears throat> Today we'll dive into that, the second of our six identities and rhythms, and that is that we are worshipers. God has made us worshipers. And when I say us, I don't just mean those of us who are followers of Jesus, but really God has created all humans to be creatures that worship. And so regardless of who or what we worship, we all have something to which we ascribe transcendent value or supreme importance. Maybe it's Jesus. I sure hope it is. But maybe it's ourselves. Maybe it's our family, or our job, or our studies, or really anything else in our lives. Uh, it's a principle throughout Scripture that uh, this theologian G.K. Beale, he summarizes. He says, what people revere, they resemble, either for ruin or restoration. That is, we become what we worship. What we think of as transcendent transforms us. What we see as supreme shapes us. We become what we worship. We become like what we worship. Our passage this morning, they give us a framework for considering what we worship, or rather, who we worship, and how we worship. In this interaction with the Samaritan woman, Jesus speaks to us about the heart of our worship. The things that matter, the things that don't matter as much. Jesus tells us that the Father is looking for people to worship Him in spirit and truth. So we'll talk about all the different concepts that are kind of crammed into that small phrase. Along with how we then live out that identity as worshipers. Because Jesus has called us to worship the Father by the power of the spirit of truth. We'll unpack all that. Our passage today. Let's dive in. First, let's kind of zoom out a little bit, get our bearings for a moment. When, where are we in this story? Who's Jesus talking to? What's he saying? Why is he saying it? In John chapter 4, we read one of Jesus' most famous interactions. It's the woman at the well. In the course of their conversation, Jesus reveals to the woman that he has you know, this intimate knowledge about her and the details of her life. John chapter 4, Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. Jesus' knowledge makes the woman shocked. And she realizes, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. The next verse. She says, I'm starting to think there's something more to you than what you're letting on. You've clearly been sent by God. Then the very next thing that comes out of her mouth, it may seem kind of random or strange to us, but if we think about it for a minute, most of us would probably react in the same way. Here's her next statement. She says, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Samaritan woman, she meets a man who's clearly been sent by God. She realizes that. And then this is where we should see ourselves in the story. Her first instinct is then, okay, settle this theological debate for me. 
once and for all. Mr. Prophet, I've got a question about worship, and I need an answer. I've read each side's writings. I've inherited all the traditions. My people, the Samaritans, say, worship on this mountain. Your people, the Jews, say, only on the mountain of Jerusalem. So which is it? Are we the same way? We encounter Jesus, and our first instinct is maybe to use him as a weapon in our worship wars. Jesus, I've read all the articles. I've scrolled through all the Twitter threads. I've listened to all the podcasts. Now settle it for me. What's the right model? Mega church, house church. Electric guitars, choir lofts. Dress shoes, flip flops. Jesus, my mom grew up Pentecostal and my dad grew up Presbyterian. Which mountain do I worship on? And what am I supposed to do with my hands? <laughs> now, in all seriousness, uh, those aren't frivolous things. Uh, they speak to important aspects, important theological and practical aspects of worship. Thankfully, by the end of this story, uh, we see the woman become a missionary to her city. But what I want to see that her initial instinct is to use Jesus to justify her worship rather than just worshiping Jesus. She asked that theological question, where is the true place worshipers worship? Jesus responds by telling her how and with what kind of heart true worshipers worship. Jesus says, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. So worshiping in spirit and truth. What is Jesus telling the woman? What is Jesus telling us today? For starters, what does it even mean to worship? It's a word we use a lot. Maybe we can get numb to it. I mentioned it a little bit earlier in passing, but I want to make sure that I'm kind of being explicit. When we talk about worship... Worship is really anything that we do that expresses our view that something holds transcendent value or supreme importance in our lives. Anything. Singing. Serving. Sacrifice. Even sinning. In fact, when we're worshiping someone or something other than God, it's always our sin that most clearly reveals the object of our worship. So, as we want to we specify here at Chorus... We are worshipers of Jesus who seek to grow together in our delight of Jesus for his glory. We are worshipers of Jesus who seek to grow together in our delight of Jesus for his glory. <clears throat> then worshiping in spirit, what is that? I talked to um, Tyler Eads this week who leads us so often in musical worship uh, to get his opinion on some of these categories. Here's what Tyler had to say about worshiping in spirit. He said, it means that we allow our inner being, our soul, to engage with him, to love him, to serve him, and to love one another. I love that description. Our God has created us as whole human persons. That means mind, body, soul, emotions. It's easy, it's really easy for us to dismiss our heart and our emotions, isn't it? I mean, after all, doesn't Jeremiah tell us that the heart is deceitful above all things, desperately sick, who can know it? And it is true that our hearts have been stained by our sin. 
Well, let's take this as an opportunity to kind of refresh our understanding of the effects of sin and this doctrine that we call total depravity. This term can almost mislead us a little bit into thinking that uh, the, the scriptures teach us that all human beings are as bad as they can be all the time. It's an easy, like, extreme to kind of jump to based on the name of that doctrine. But what we're really talking about when we use the term total depravity is that all areas of human nature have been affected to some degree by sin. Our bodies, our minds, our emotions, so on and so forth. Now, none of us would ever dream of saying that we can't or shouldn't worship God with our minds or our bodies. So let's also not resist the call to worship Him with all of our hearts. That is, our souls and our emotions. Karis, your, your leaders, uh, We've developed a desire that we would be an emotionally healthy church. And that as individuals, we would be emotionally healthy followers of Jesus. Anything less than that, it actually inhibits our ability to worship. It inhibits our ability to worship God as He desires. And it puts up barriers between us as we worship together as a community. So Jesus says, the Father is seeking out those who will worship Him in spirit. Why? Well, because God is spiritual. For a time in history, God revealed Himself to a people whose conception of worship was centered around a specific place, around the temple. This is kind of getting at the backstory of the Samaritan woman's question. Uh, several weeks ago, Pastor Kevin preached from Psalm 137 for us. And the central conflict of that psalm was this, in verse 4. How should we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? How can we worship here in Babylonian captivity? And it's not just that they were you know, sad and disheartened over being exiled and in captivity, though they were. But being in a foreign land, having seen their temple be destroyed, they literally didn't know how they were supposed to worship. Because worship was supposed to take place in the temple. It was God-centric worship, yet temple-oriented worship. So Jesus tells us in our passage today, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers, when the true worshipers will worship the Father and Spirit. I'm going to keep saying the word worship and I'm going to keep getting tongue-tied as we go. The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit. The woman asks, and Jesus says, pretty soon, anywhere, and everywhere is where we'll worship. If, as Habakkuk prophesies, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, then there's no building that could be constructed, no altar or no mountaintop that could possibly contain the flood. When we talk about worshiping the Father in spirit, we're talking about worshiping Him wherever we are, with all that we are. Wherever we are, with all that we are. And that's not the only way that the Father is seeking to be worshiped. Jesus says, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. 
Maybe for many of us, worshiping in truth almost comes more naturally than worshiping in spirit. When we think of worshiping in truth, we want to focus on worship that is aligned accurately with the reality of who God is. Again, back to something that Tyler shared with me. He said, to worship God in truth is to follow his commands underneath the canopy of his truth and the laws that he has given us for our good and for his glory. And again, I love this. This is so great. Because what Tyler's emphasizing with that thought is worshiping in truth requires both doctrine, that is, God's revealed law and will and scripture, as well as obedience. Truth, sound doctrine, is crucial to our worship. If we don't know what we're worshiping, who we're worshiping, how can we know whether or not we're worshiping well, worshiping rightly? Without a solid foundation of truth, we can kind of fall into these uh, idolatries of, or false worship. Things like Christian nationalism, legalism, or the rejecting the authority of God's word in favor of what our own desires and experiences tell us. But regardless of what direction your idolatry takes you, that doesn't make it any less idolatrous. It's still worshiping someone or something other than God. Someone or something that is less worthy of your praise. Biblical truth is vital for biblical worship. But from the doctrine, there must flow obedience. In James 1, we read this famous passage, be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself, and goes away, and at once forgets what he was like. And then in Romans 12, we also read, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Church, our doctrinally true worship, our doctrinally faithful worship, must be concurrent with genuine and true obedience. James says if we don't do that, we're foolish. We're like a guy who looks in the mirror, walks away, and forgets what he looks like. Paul says that's one of the ways that we worship, is offering ourselves. And it's what we've been talking about in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus teaching us about genuine giving, genuine fasting, genuine prayer. Another ministry mentor that I've had uh, in the course of my life used to emphasize to me that so much of Christian belief and practice is as simple as staying out of the ditches. Being able to hold two truths in balance with each other, not veering off to one side crashing. This is what we have to remember when we think about worshiping in spirit and truth. The two are complementary. They go together. They're not in competition with each other. What do I mean? It can be tempting for us to emphasize spirit to the neglect of truth and vice versa. But if we worship with all spirit and no truth, then we are at risk being led astray by the sin in our hearts. We have to be grounded in the truth of God's word, living according to it. On the other hand, if we worship with all truth, no spirit, we risk becoming cold, critical, legalistic, 
or loveless. Jesus speaks to both of those aspects of yearning one side or the other. You see them a lot in Jesus' words to the churches in Revelation. So when we talk about worshiping the Father in spirit and in truth, here's what we're talking about. Worshiping Him wherever we are, with all that we are, for who He truly is, living as who He's called us to truly be. Worshiping Him wherever we are, with all that we are, for who He truly is, and living as who He's truly called us to be. One last thought on worshiping in spirit and truth before talking about how we live out this identity. Here in his gospel, uh, John begins to leave us a trail of breadcrumbs with that phrase, in spirit and truth. I love this. Where we get to the end of it is in the end of John, chapters 14 and 15. Here, Jesus gives his final uh, address, his final words to his disciples before being arrested, put on trial, crucified. One of the promises that Jesus makes is that he will not leave them alone. He'll send them the Holy Spirit. But Holy Spirit is not the only name by which Jesus refers to this third person of the Trinity. Both at the beginning of this passage, chapter 14, at the end of this passage, chapter 15, Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of Truth. The Spirit of Truth. You can see where I'm going. This is one of the things I love most about reading the Bible. It's not enough. It can't be read through one time and mastered in one go-around. Studying the scriptures has this cyclical element where reading it changes us and then deepens our understanding. But then we go back, we read it again as the new person the scriptures made us, and we have even deeper understanding and are changed even more. So in the book of John, if we just read it once and put it away, back in the drawer or whatever, uh, we might never notice this. But if we read through it from end to end, and then start back over, we've already got spirit of truth in our minds. And then we get back to this passage and see that Jesus is talking about worshiping in spirit and truth. There's a connection. It seems that what John is doing here is calling us, or not what John is doing, what Jesus is doing, is calling us to worship by the power of the Spirit of truth. And if we think about it, how can it mean anything less than that? We need to worship with all of our heart. And it's the Spirit of truth who recreates our sinful hearts and even gives us the ability to know and love and praise the Father. We need to worship in truth. And it's the spirit of truth who reveals what God is like through the scriptures. And then empowers us to actually obey those words. Jesus says God is spirit, so he must be worshipped in spirit and truth. But the only way we can do that, the only way we can be faithful in that, is to have already been transformed by the spirit of truth. This is just one of the amazing things that Jesus announces is at hand. Lots of things are at hand in Jesus' preaching. One of them is that through his life, ministry, death, resurrection, and ascension, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, we're enabled to be true worshipers. 
hearts. We are worshipers. That's our identity. Jesus has made us a family of worshipers who worship in spirit and truth by the transforming power of the spirit of truth. So how do we do this? How do we live into this identity as worshipers, both as individuals, but then also as a whole community? What kinds of rhythms do we need to incorporate into our lives as a result of knowing who God has made us to be? Well, the rest of our time, I want to leave us with several ways that we can live as worshipers. Number one, celebrate. Celebration is kind of the center of all worship. After all, when we're expressing our belief that something is ultimate, transcendent, and supreme, so much of the time that's going to manifest in joy and praise. It can manifest in other ways. But celebration is one of the key ways. And then all these other things that we'll talk about as well are aspects, can be aspects of celebration. Do you think Christians are known generally for being celebrators? If not, shouldn't we be? After all, we've got more to celebrate than anyone else. If you're a disciple of Jesus, that means you trust that God is good and powerful, that he's designed our world to be a good and orderly place. And even though we keep messing up this world with our sin, he took the initiative to set things right again. We believe that God sent his own son to pay the price for our sins, a price we couldn't pay. And through his death and resurrection, his personal and transcendent presence has been unleashed in our world, unleashed to transform us and the rest of creation. Church, birthdays and holidays and game days are all great days to celebrate, but Christians never need an extra excuse to celebrate, to party, to praise. I want Carlos to be known for gathering together to celebrate his gospel, as well as what God is doing through it in our lives. Let me say that again. I want us as a church, I want Carlos to be known for gathering together to celebrate the gospel, as well as what God is doing through it in our lives. Number two way that we can live out our identity as worshipers. Sing. When I talked to Tyler about worship, he made sure to emphasize that worship is not just singing. And he's right. As we've kind of seen through all the different passages we've looked at today, uh, Scripture tells us that worship is all of life, attitude, and action. All of life, attitude, and action. It's so much more than singing, but it's also not less than singing. Throughout all Scripture, again, and especially in the Psalms, we see verse after verse imploring God's people to praise Him with any number of instruments and songs. I want to sing more. Why? Because singing is one of those basic ways and fundamental ways that humans worship and celebrate and express our joy. Number three, touch some grass. I'm being kind of facetious when I say this. Uh, if you've never heard that phrase, it's probably a good thing. Kind of originated during the pandemic a little bit, when everyone was inside and online way too much, getting angry about just about everything. When it's clear you're interacting with someone online who's out of touch with reality, uh, it's not uncommon to look in the comments section and someone tell them, like, 
hey man, you need to go touch some grass. Like, you need to log out, go outside. There's a reality that you haven't engaged with in a while. There's a real world that you don't seem to be a part of. A couple of weeks ago, we went through Psalm 19 and talked about the beauty of God in creation, how he's revealed his glory through the world that he's made. One way that we can worship God as individuals, but also together, is by going outside, being in God's world, and telling God and telling each other how awesome and beautiful this thing is that God's made. And fourth, and finally, uh, way that we can express this identity as worshipers. This participate in a regular liturgy, both personally and as a community. Maybe you're like me, maybe you grew up in kind of a low church context, um, you know, one that's you know, just kind of doing its own thing. Um, I sometimes wonder if there were things that I was missing out on from the rest of church history and tradition. One element to consider is kind of the Christian liturgical calendar. When most people kind of in our circles use the term liturgy, we're talking about kind of an order of service during a Sunday morning gathering. And that is, yeah, that's, you know, a liturgy. Uh, what is also meant by the term liturgy is these cycles of time that we live out on a regular basis. For the church, that's historically been this annual cycle that we live out the story of Jesus' life in the life of our churches. Starting with the Advent season, going through Pentecost Sunday. I know, I know. There's not a liturgical calendar in the New Testament, so we don't need to have anything to do with it, right? I used to have that thought, uh, but as I've kind of listened and learned over the past several years, seen that this organization in the Old Testament, this Hebrew conception of time that God gives his people, a seven-day week concluding with a Sabbath day, a seven-year cycle concluding with a Sabbath year, a seven-Sabbath-year cycle concluding with a year of Jubilee, and each year, seven celebrations, feasts and festivals by which Israel reenacted the key elements of their story. In other words, a liturgical calendar. These weekly and monthly and yearly and even generational rhythms, they're formed formed both the individual and the community as worshipers. They even form the next generation. So if God gave his old covenant people regular rhythms to keep uh, and live by, it shouldn't come as a surprise that the earliest followers of Jesus developed their own rhythms oriented around what they saw as history's climactic moments. The birth, the life, the ministry, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus in the beginning of his church. <clears throat> but do we modern people, do we, do, we need this, do we need this kind of liturgy in our lives? Why is it necessary? Or how does it aid us in forming that identity as worshipers? Well, let me start by observing that everyone lives out some kind of the time-bound rhythms of life that are born out of and then reinforce our worldviews and ideas. If you're a sports fan, or like a youth sports family, the annual liturgy of off-season, pre-season, regular season, post-season can be really powerful. 
or if you're you know, a big football fan like me, the weekly rhythm of Thursday night football, Friday night lights, college football Saturday, Sunday NFL, then Monday night football. It can end up dominating the majority of my week if I'm not careful. And then there are even these high holy days, you know, like opening weekend, the national championship game, the Super Bowl, the draft. And then if you're more politically oriented, politically invested, the primaries, the midterms, the general election, for the weekend warrior, Thursday Thursday through Sunday fun day, for the academically inclined, syllabus week, midterms, finals, break. We all have a liturgy. We all have these different kinds of rhythms that we give ourselves to. And they're as endless as there are people that exist. Make no mistake though, each rhythm has a central focus, whether it be entertainment, money, power, recognition, or some other achievement. They all have an orienting focus which provides meaning to every event of the week, the month, the year. If Christians aren't careful, we can find ourselves adopting these other rhythms and being formed into better sports fans, better pundits, better school students than we are disciples of Jesus. But instead, what if we organized as, and prioritized as central to our identity the person of Jesus? After all, that's kind of the call that we all set out to pursue. What would it look like if our late fall and our early winter months were shaped by this expectant longing for Jesus to come near to us? As we remember when he first came as a child and a servant, one day to return as a slain lamb king. Would our joy increase if we celebrated his arrival, Christmas Day, for a full 12 days instead of just the one? If the beginning of our years were focused on Jesus' ministry and kingdom proclamation, how would that change our outlook for the whole year moving forward? To spend a full 40 days of genuine fasting, will we recognize Jesus' own reliance on the Holy Spirit? What about our need? Perhaps we would identify more with Jesus' passion and, if we, and recognize the lead up to Easter if we walked through those days, day by day, with that midweek focus on the Last Supper and the crucifixion. Imagine new creation life and resurrection power being in the front of our minds for 50 straight days instead of making sure it's out of the way for ham and bunnies and eggs. If our rhythms as individuals and as a community were more in tune with the life of Jesus, we would become more Jesus-oriented disciples and worshipers. And after all, Jesus is the one who is central to our worship. The one to whom the spirit of truth testifies. We'll close with this. At the end of Matthew's gospel, we read the Great Commission, where Jesus sends his followers out into the world to proclaim the gospel message. Before we get that, we read this. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Church, these verses leave us with when you boil it all down, the only two options you can have when you see Jesus for who he truly is. Live into your identity. Celebrate him. Worship him. 
Let's pray. God, we worship and we praise you this morning. Thank you for your words to us, for all these verses that show us who you are, why you deserve to be worshipped above everyone and everything else. God, you've called us to be your worshipers, and you're making us into a people who are centered around Jesus. Lord, we need to be transformed by your spirit of truth so that we can worship you in spirit and truth. Lord, as we respond to you in worshiping around your table, would you grant us unity with you, with one another as a spiritual family? And let us see again today in a fresh way uh, the meaning and the purpose of your sacrifice and worship you all the more for it. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. <clears throat>